Welcome to the Center for Internet Security's podcast, Cybersecurity Where You Are. Cybersecurity affects us all, whether we are at home, managing a company, supporting clients, or even running a state or local government. Join CIS's Sean Atkinson and Tony Sager as they discuss trends and threats, ways to implement controls and infrastructure, explore best practices, and interview experts in the industry. We are here to bring clarity to these complex issues to bring confidence in the connected world. Hello and welcome to the show, Cybersecurity, where you are. I'm Sean Atkinson, CISO here at the Center for Internet Security, joined by my co-host, Tony Sager. How are you, Tony? Great, Sean. Great to be back with you and a great uh, topic and guest today. Absolutely. And we're joined by James Yeager, Vice President of Public Sector and Healthcare at uh, CrowdStrike. James, how are you, sir? I'm doing well, guys. Thanks for having me. Wonderful, wonderful. So James, I wonder if you could provide an introduction to both CrowdStrike and your role at CrowdStrike as well, please. Sure. Well, introducing CrowdStrike these days is a heck of a lot easier than it once was, certainly uh, compared to when it was seven years ago when I arrived. Uh, But we are conventionally known for being in the endpoint security space. Uh, our capabilities, our company's vision, the innovation that we're driving for our customers and partners has certainly allowed us to evolve with the state of the threat. So uh, the kind of ephemeral nature of security allows us to get into cloud, uh, logging, observability, identity, uh, threat detection and response, managed services. So we've got a very versatile platform. Uh, my domain specifically supports all aspects of the kind of conventional public sector realm that we're most associated with. So federal, and when I say federal, it's all aspects of federal intelligence, defense, civilian, uh, also the defense industrial base. So those critical government contracting partners, then state, local, higher education, and K through 12. And then I also purvey over our healthcare space. Wonderful. A lot of space and in a lot of cases, a lot of need, James, um, you know, both small and large organizations in the, those industrial sectors needing an approach and i just um you know review an assessment here of moving to the endpoint and looking at endpoint detection and response really starting to get to really i'll say the cutting edge of what we see in cybersecurity these days the need to be on device looking at client being able to assess processes uh, and really understand that environment has added um both for myself internally and through our endpoint security uh, uh, security program, this program includes the creation of CIS endpoint security services (ESS) and Spotlight, along with plans to launch uh, other services such as mobile in the next few months. Huge benefits um, for telemetry and understanding our threat landscape. Yeah, no doubt about it. And I will say, um, as as somewhat of a mutual plug here, I think our organizations are partnering fabulously uh, these days. Uh, We're thrilled to have CIS as a partner and the work that we're doing for SLTT and the membership of the MSISAC and also the EIISAC. Uh, It's it's important work. Uh, There's plenty of additional work to be done. Uh, The challenges get worse before they show any signs of improving. Uh, But security and security technology has come a long way. So I think our ability to kind of meet the adversary in the field and contend with a lot of their disruption and, and their TTPs uh, is improving. Absolutely agree. Absolutely agree. And I think it's, uh, and Tony, I'll reflect on, you know, for the, the small and large organization, uh, no matter what the organization's position 
maturity, this type of capability, this approach uh, just provides, uh, you know, ultimately a benefit in terms of understanding both the threat landscape and your current posture. Yeah, I mean, I, you know, I've been been around this stuff for a long time, James, and you know, got to see uh, in early conversations with some of the founders of, of CrowdStrike. So here are some of those early ideas that, are in hindsight, became the basis for what you guys do. And it's, you know, it's sort of fascinating to watch the movement of like, you know, where where do I make defensive decisions, right, at the perimeter, at the endpoint, at the middle point, at the server, and and so I think you know you're part of our evolution also in terms of the services that we provide from. You, you know, you, as you look at all the traffic that flies around, you know, you've sort of been moving, I'll say, uh, conceptually from how does an enterprise de- uh, defend itself to how do I defend a large scale enterprise, which consists of many enterprises, right? Many of which are not able to defend themselves. And so you have to think of this as a, as a big system that you're building. And you guys have been, I think, on the edge of those kinds of ideas, right? How do I, how do I rapidly learn from one part of a giant ecosystem to defend others within that ecosystem has really been, I think, the, 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 the need for scaling defense, right, past the how do I protect one, one set of users. No doubt. So one of the things, Tony, um, that I've been thinking about is as we approach um, what I, I, and I mentioned before, cutting edge cybersecurity. And one of the things I've been thinking about is some of the innovations that I've seen. And, you know, we, we come a across, you know, these new uh, surprises, as it were, in cybersecurity. And I, I think uh, it, it'll be one of the topics that I want to address with James, but there's, uh, you know, we start to see supply chain attack, right? We, we've seen ransomware become so pervasive and, and such a, a threat to many organizations, big, small, it doesn't matter, they don't care, right? It's, uh, if there's an ability to make money, it's become a business. We've talked about this, Tony, how it's become an economy. Uh, you know, those are some of the surprises that I've started to see uh, in the environment. And, you know, if we go back respectfully two years, we could go back further and, uh, and see the permeation of these elements. But James, I wanted to get your thoughts on what the biggest surprises that you've seen and then obviously how counter, uh, CrowdStrike has really reacted to those through your innovation and uh, uh, curation of uh, capability in the space. Yeah, sure. Well, I mean, how much time do we have here, right? <laughs> yeah, it's a, it's, a, it's a massive problem set for us to kind of tackle as, as a collective. And I use that word in the end here very intentionally because it's going to take an army for us to kind of continue to fight the good fight here. Yeah, you know, some of the biggest challenges that we see today, uh, you know, there's a long list of them, but, you know, all, you know, you mentioned it a second ago, Sean, right, that the adversary spares no one, right, small and large organizations. And so we look at some of the challenges, think about the proliferation of identity threats, right, and that vector and how that's kind of evolving. It's really become a mainstream focus for the adversary community. Uh, statistically speaking, 80% of intrusions today involve compromised credentials. If you look at the 2023 CrowdStrike Global Threat Report, we found that 62% of all interactive intrusions involve the abuse of valid credentials. So that's a real issue. And you know, our advice here is pretty simple to our customers, our prospects, and to the broader kind of constituent community, if you will, is that you got to implement identity-based countermeasures such as, you know, user account auditing on a regular basis, not just annual. I think things like zero trust uh, and the need to kind of always be on, uh, you know, never trust, always verify 
uh, increasing the kind of rigorous analysis of security logs and logging of network traffic to kind of identify the vulnerabilities that could expose organizations to these type of identity-based threats. So that's one. You know, the other thing that I would say is uh, we are constantly harping on this concept of speed and efficiency, right? If you think about speed as this um, highly coveted characteristic or attribute that both sides of the equation, the, the adversary community and kind of the defense community is always looking to kind of acquire and harness, uh, it, it really becomes a, a massive chess match, right? Um, so if you think about the time to, to be able to detect and response, and then you start thinking about things like breakout time, and for the listeners who may not be familiar with breakout time, I'll kind of oversimplify it, but it's effectively the average time that it takes an adversary to kind of, you know, kind of commence with an intrusion, right? To kind of, you know, break into an environment and then move laterally and start to kind of wreak their habit. Um, if you look at the way we've measured that over the last few years, we've seen some improvement from the adversary community. And I, I almost hate using that word uh, because it's complimentary, right? But in 2022, they were averaging 84 minutes. Just this past year, our statistics revealed that that's down by five minutes to 79 minutes on average. If you're ready for potentially what's an eye-popping statistic is that the fastest breakout time of this past year was recorded at just seven minutes. So when you think about that, what we're really asking our defenders to do is to kind of look themselves in the mirror, operate with the most tremendous sense of humility and ask those questions like, can you stand up to the most rigorous test that the adversary community is going to impose upon your organization? Yeah. And, you know, James, that's such, such a great point, right? That, you know, in the, when I talk about this, you know, when it was military audiences in my prior career at NSA, it, if you know the term OODA loop, right? Observe, orient, decide, act. You know, we're operating inside information loops. And in many ways, the attacker has the advantage, right? He doesn't have to worry about breaking systems or, you, you know, cranky users or things like that. And, you know, in sort of traditional defense, right? You, you can never win because the attacker has all the advantages, but, you know, the kinds of things that you guys do in other parts of the market really look at that. How do I how do I bring this time down so that at least I'm on an equal footing here or I can, you know, understand what advantage they have and sort of design my defenses right for that. You, know, you, you can't respond faster unless you build some infrastructure that lets you sense quickly, then lets you take action, then resense to see what's going on. So I think that, you know, and that has been, I think, one of the strengths of the, the things that you guys have done, right, is to understand it's not just collecting and reporting or blocking, it's understanding the whole attack cycle and deciding how, how do we break that cycle, right? And some of it you can do, some of it has to be done by the, uh, you know, by the defender. So I think that point of, you know, how you put that information together. So I, I assume you, you must have a pretty, pretty clever team that thinks about these, you know, what, what is our best advice to give? Is, is that a, um, what sort of process do you guys go through when you think about that, right? How, how do I, how do I give them that my, my customers, not just the best service, but the best advice on what they ought to be doing. Yeah. You know, we do have a tremendous team. Thank you for saying that. Um, and, and we take great pride in the work that we do. We don't have the market cornered on security for whatever it's worth. Uh, it takes great partnerships as I've already said. Uh, but I think one of the things that really differentiates CrowdStrike is the tremendous premium that we place on understanding the adversary and our kind of adversary centric approach to security. You know, if you think about this in the context of, uh, and this is gonna be me nerding out here a little bit, but 
the, the, the this notion of kind of Sun Tzu art of war, right? We think about that as, you know, understanding two fundamental domains. You have the domain of your of of your organization, right? The entity that you are securing, you know, and a lot of that uh, requires tremendous visibility uh, and things like cyber hygiene and the ability to do things like EDR. Um, uh, and, and I've got some other thoughts on kind of how uh, the, the the security realm has evolved beyond conventional uh, endpoints and, and, and perimeter, as you talked about uh, in some of your opening remarks. But the other side of that is knowing your enemy, right? And, and that requires you to identify the adversaries. It requires you to have historical context on their behaviors, uh, to understand their motivations, uh, and to know what they're after and what techniques they've leveraged in the past, maybe what market segments or what industries or verticals they're targeting? Uh, are they after it for financial gain? Are they just after it for pure uh, sinister you know, motives and, and, and destruction? And then the other thing that I would say when it kind of comes to the information aspect of this thing, threat intelligence, is even that aspect of security has really evolved uh, quite quite some bit here. And, and I think at CrowdStrike, we certainly have a lot of the conventional capabilities when it comes to threat intelligence, the ability, ability to generate reporting, right? Short, short form reporting like alerts, true uh, long form reporting like finished intelligence capabilities. But one of the things that we do, which creates some of that uh, efficiency and brings some of that speed back into the defensive community, is we have this concept of what I would call like ingesting threat intelligence into the nature of our platform. What you really want to do is if you want to know about the adversary, and if you think about the day in the life of the operator, you don't really have time to be able to take that report, to go through elements and attributes of that report, break it down, sometimes declassify it, right? You know, those from your from your old days, you know, Tony, like then you got to feed it back into your security apparatus. You got to build your own reporting. Well, what if that intelligence was in a panel side by side, right at your fingertips so that you can look contextually about what you're seeing locally? Who, who that activity is tied to, what potential damage that could do to your environment, and then very quickly open up the aperture and zoom out and figure out what havoc they've wreaked in a global point of view. So we're bringing that intelligence down to the fingertips of the adversary, and it's really helping them with their mission. Yeah, that, that context is so uh, so valuable. By the way, I go back to the days when people would literally read a message and cut and paste, you know, crazy strings from one tool to another. And it's like, oh, my gosh, what are we doing to ourselves? Right? Yeah. Let me go grab this URL. Right. Let me get this file. Yeah. <laughs> you know, we had poor folks. I mean, you know, the, the poor underappreciated defenders in this case, right? The amount of grunt work that we've asked them to do over the years. But I said, but minus that that context, right? You know, and it you as you said, you, you have to get outside of the technical realm, right? This is about intentions, right? This is, takes us into sort of these classic problems of intelligence and, you know, uh, capability, intention, you know, kind of the dynamics of the world situation and what they're going for. And I'll, I'll play off a point you made earlier too. I used to say, you know, if you want to, if you want to see capitalism in action, study the bad guys, not the good guys. You know, there's a certain Darwinian efficiency, right, to, to say, what's the fastest way? Maybe I don't build it myself. I, I rent the time on the bots or I, you know, I, I hire a tool maker and I don't need my own. And you see, because of the, the sort of purity of the financial motive, for example, you know, sort of better alignment in, in many cases on defense. 
and attackers struggle with that because they they have to actually keep systems running and do all those those other things. So, so I think your 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 the point about context, you know, as a key uh, component of prioritization of defense is a really important one. But again, you have to you have to get people to sort of be ready to ingest that, right? To have the machinery in place that can take what you provide and be able to quickly assess prioritize, take action, and so forth. So, it's a, so you know, designing defense is a partnership activity right up front, right? It's not a, let me buy what you guys have and I'll be good. It's, you're part of a, a team that's designing these. And I think, uh, you know, that, uh, that implies then a lot of work on your part in, in helping the customer, right, understand how to uh, uh, t- best take advantage of what you can bring to them. Does that, that sort of resonate? Because I know you have lots of, again, clever folks who do that for a living. Yeah, you know, we, we, uh, you know, we, we put an unimaginable amount of, uh, man hours, uh, you know, into, to making sure we're in the right position at the right time, you know, whether it's our threat operators, whether it's our overwatch team, whether it's our Falcon complete, which is our managed detection and response service, whether it's that operational team, uh, you know, working 24, seven, 365. I mean, here's what we know about the adversary one, We've already said that they spare no one. We also know that they take no days off. Uh, so some of the most kind of invasive and destructive attacks come in the middle of the night. They come on the weekends. They come on the holidays. They come when folks seemingly are kind of like taking their eye off the ball. And so, you know, the the, the customer teams that we partner with who are doing some of the most noble work out there in the field need our help. But we, we need their help as well, because going back to your OODA loop example, right, we've got to feed off one another, right? I, I said, like, you know, we don't see all the angles. We don't have all the answers. Um, but I think about things like, think about cloud, right? That's become the new battlefield for the adversary. And as our customers are on this kind of transformative mission to migrate to the cloud, thank goodness. I mean, I don't know how long it's taken, but we're, we're getting there, right? And and we'll see more and more progress there with every week, month, and year to come, you know, but the proficiency of kind of adversaries operating in the cloud has continued to evolve. You know, you know, if you think about, you know, uh, some of the threat reporting that we've documented already, the concerning reality is that threat actors are well aware of their advantage in the cloud. And that's reflected in a 95% year over year increase in cloud exploitation just think about the scattered spider attack and how they were able to bypass IAM and, and MFA. So, you know, they, they've quickly identified and exploited, you know, common misconfigs, uh, you know, the things that are abused in, and really kind of built into the management tooling of the cloud infrastructure. We're, we're all aware of some of the highly documented and high profile attacks like solar winds. Uh, so it, it's a real problem, but, you know, every time a customer is dealing with an issue, it's an opportunity for us to learn. It's an opportunity for us to pivot and find new ways to help. And kind of, so that, that like symbiotic relationship is critical to us. Oh, no question. I mean, that becomes your, uh, you know, part of the innovation loop as well. It's part of the OODA loop in a lot of cases in order to integrate those elements. And, you know, we have the defender's dilemma, as uh, Tony mentioned, you know, you know, it's always that approach, but, um, it always seems, and, you know, we'll play the game theory side of these things, is the mousetrap that we build, then, the, you know, 
defenders need to, uh, you know, attackers then need to become smarter and they apply the approach and they'll look for the weakest link. As, as you mentioned, cloud uh, migrations and cloud capability have enabled elements in that space. You know, we talk at IoT and these things. But one of the things I wanted to talk to you about, James, and I wanted to get your thoughts because it's hard to do any of these shows anymore without mentioning artificial intelligence and machine learning. Is the advantage now coming back to the defender to implement those capabilities? But then also in transition, I think the adversaries are also utilizing the same capability. And it's again, it's, you know, kind of on a different plane, but still, you know, it's uh, AI versus AI in some cases. But has AI become that new solution that uh, solves all of our problems? Cool. Um, I don't think so. Um, <laughs> I, man, it would be nice, wouldn't it? Uh uh, it's, uh, you know, look, it, it, there's no silver bullet, uh, whether it's AI or, or, or anything else, there's no panacea. AI has got many virtues. There's a tremendous amount of benefits. We all understand that, uh, and, and identifying risk reward and technology capabilities is really important. You know, it's interesting that AI has become this new buzzword similar to, you know, XDR is a, is, a, is a buzzword. Not that we've forgotten about that acronym. We still talk about it. Zero trust. You know, industry does a fantastic job, in my opinion, by the way, of confusing the heck out of uh, everyone and throwing, you know, throwing these new concepts, many of which aren't new, but we relabel them. And, and AI is a, is a perfect example of that because really since the inception of CrowdStrike over 12 years ago, we've been leveraging AI in the framework of our platform. Um, and so we recognize uh, the criticality of information and harvesting data and a vast variety of data sets, uh, correlating them and then infusing that with kind of some of our own contextual findings that we have from, you know, you know, sensor based intelligence and signal based intelligence, the, the information that we gather through investigations. It all goes into these models that we train Um but here's what's here's what's true, right? And this is the reason why AI can't be, you know, the silver bullet is that we believe very strongly that in order to kind of do defensive security properly, you need to have the convergence of AI and the human capital arena, right? People need to provide some of that uh, subjective uh, analysis. They need to provide some of that context. Look, all systems, all you know, are are designed and engineered designed and engineered to kind of ingest these things that have happened in the past. And then what we want to do is extrapolate that and paint a, a predictive picture of what the future may look like. But what AI lacks right now is some of that intuition and some of that creativity, the, the ability to provide true meaning for what's something that's going on that they may have never seen before. And that's why you need the humans. And that's why I think you know, it's not like the jury's still out on AI. I think that there's a lot of really interesting things that are going on. Everyone's talking about generative AI. Um, but if you think about things like natural language processing and think about the operational efficiencies that can be gained there to shorten the life cycle of uh, query generation, query creation, script generation and deployment, uh, there's a lot of really, really, really true benefits. But we're never going to get away from like a protection standpoint of relying on some of those humans. And the other thing too, is the adversaries are leveraging AI too, right? So they're meeting us head on in the battlefield. And I think to, to kind of combat this adversarial activity, you need to have the best AI and the best data set 
Um, but we also believe that that needs to be kind of human annotated information, right? So that we can kind of feed that into some of our, our algorithms and have the most robust, uh, robust defense mechanisms. Yeah, over, uh, you know, all three of us have had plenty of time to be around this business. And when you see the best, right, in, you know, in, in the defensive or analytic world, you think, oh, my goodness, they're just really clever. And it's, you know, it just seems like, uh, you know, the uh, there's there's a long way to go before that sort of cleverness, that intuition, that judgment can be replaced. Well, we could make tremendous strides. Though. You talked about the, the reams, I mean, the volumes of information that people have to deal with from different sources and to try to pull things together just to get to the point where you can use human's judgment. We could do a lot to improve that, right? To make available the best resources. Uh, there's, a, there's a term I used to use, James, in some of my talks, and you guys are part of that industry, right? Uh, you know, in defense, I actually want to look, you know, I used to say this, if all you can see is what you own, you're hopeless, right? You'll never be able to defend yourself. You have to be able to look, you know, I'll call it um, farther in space, and earlier in time, right? Incidents don't happen like, you know, kind of as independent, you know, start and stop things, right? They're happening all the time. Tools are being developed. Reconnaissance is happening. Things are happening on the other side of the world that'll apply to you. So the ability to pull that together to get a more comprehensive picture of what has happened, could happen, you know, is happening in other geographies or to other people or, or is being experimented with somewhere else is essential to this. But the problem is that that, ability to sort of pull it all together is beyond human reach, right? To, to make it available for these, you know, the role of humans, which is both intuition, cleverness, good judgment, you know, being able to tie it to the, to the uh, uh, decisions that a business has to make. So I think, I think you characterize it well. There's, you know, there's a lot to be done here to improve the lot of the defender, but I think uh, at least if you're any good, I, I, I see plenty of job opportunities ahead for, for all these clever people that I've known over my years. That's right. Now, one thing we could talk about a little bit now. So, the, so there's a lot of interest, and, and this has been up and down over the last you know umpteen years, James. The role of things like regulatory agencies, um, reporting of incidents, and so forth. And it's it's on a spike, uh, you know, uh, activity right now with the SEC's uh, you know new things and and what's going on. Any perspective from you know from you guys on the meaning of this, the value of this? You know, what what does it mean to the business model of folks like you? It's an interesting time, and I, I think kind of long overdue uh, for, for some of the the guidance here and the recommendations uh, coming from the SEC. I mean, from from our point of view, you know, the intent of the SEC rules is to really kind of do a couple of things, right? To protect the investors by, you know, demanding, requiring additional transparency, more clarity, if you will. Um, consistency and timeliness uh, of how organizations handle cyber related disclosures. Uh, you know, kind of one secondary effect is that, you know, companies, you know, now may implement better overall cybersecurity hygiene and, and like a risk management framework and processes to demonstrate their resilience to cyber incidents, you know, in the first place compared to where they were. It, I was on a call earlier today and it was with a bunch of healthcare CISOs and CIOs. Um, and even though they're not going to necessarily be governed by some of these new frameworks and this guidance uh, in, in the near term, uh, they were lamenting over the fact that they don't have things like CMMC, which I know is a moving target, but they also don't have some of these other kind of regulatory 
uh, and compliance, uh, you know, driven, you know, frameworks to adhere to where there is really kind of a carrot and a stick model. Um, and, and we started talking about, you know, look, if you just think about it, you know, we've got to really kind of, we, we've created this monster, right? We, we, we've, we, we've kind of struck this fear, you know, in the life of, of organizations who are being attacked and who have been breached to not want to disclose and to not want to talk about it. I've said it before, it's a prideful bunch. And there's this kind of concession that I think people feel like they're making when they talk about being owned, that I've done something wrong. Uh, you know, one of the things that I think is really interesting, if you listen to CISA leadership talk, uh, Director Easterly talks about this all the time. One of our executives um, interviewed CISA number two, Eric Goldstein, earlier this week, talking about, well, shouldn't, you know, shouldn't our defenders who are kind of talking about a breach, you know, be able to point to the instrumentation and the technology and the tooling that they've relied upon and that they've invested in to kind of do what it says it was supposed to do. It's a really, it's a really kind of tricky uh, set of circumstances for them to be in. But, you know, these, these cyber incidents happen every single day, uh, but they, they don't all rise to the level of reporting for national security concern or even like consumer protection interests. But if companies are debating a disclosure, I think what they've done, and hopefully th this guidance will illuminate for them, is that they're missing an opportunity to do something about it and, and kind of have this cry for help. Like, I think we need to get away from vilifying, you know, victims and ridiculing them because when you get breached, you did something wrong and you didn't have your act together. I think it's, it's an unfair uh, reaction to what's an impossible experience. I mean, we've already talked about how deaf the, the adversary community is and how relentless and motivated they are. So I like what the SEC is doing and, and I, I hope, you know, I, I hope people embrace it. Yeah, I think we're we're of a similar mind. I, I see Sean nodding here for the for the listeners. You, you know, in some sense, yeah, it's an attention getter. It, it kind of, and this is what Sean, the role that Sean plays for us, right? How do I put cyber risk into the context of the enterprise's risk as a whole? And so, you know, you know, I grew up in the technology part of this, right? Someday the, the clever mathematicians will invent the perfect technology that will, you know, allow us to operate with 100% confidence and mathematical provability. And they may have actually done that in the 80s. The problem is it didn't run PowerPoint, so no one would buy it, right? So, so you know, we, we, we have technology so we can uh, execute our missions, run our businesses. And I think this sort of it puts the, the question where it should be, really, at the business decision-making level. We could argue all day as, you know, two days, four days, four weeks. I, you know, I don't know the right numbers. That'll get hashed out over time. But I think there's a, a lot to be said for this. The, and I was on a panel recently talking about this. And I said, one of the things that's kind of nice about this part of this approach is it, it's not an attempt to boil the ocean, right? Create a, a separate giant parallel bureaucracy or whatever. It focuses very much on the reporting of incidents, which is a, you know, you can see there's a social good here, right? This... And you could argue about the merits of it and the you know, how we enforce it, but it feels like a pretty solid thing that is definable, bounded, and uh, makes sense for us as a way to push this decision, right? This this risk decision making to kind of where it belongs. But Sean, how about your perspective? Because this is your life, right? Sort of putting this in the for our company, we as a security company, like 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 you, James, right? 
Uh, this is our reputation. So security means a lot to us. And Sean owns this problem for us. Sean? Yeah, no, thank you, Tony. It's uh, very important. I like it shining a light and bringing more attention to the process of the, the cybersecurity risk is not the technology risk, the business risk needs to be considered at that level. And in concert, um, you know, with the public company disclosure piece, I know it's not as important as the balance sheet, but it's getting an interesting point of investors can now look through and see what governance type strategy and cybersecurity risk mitigation is being approached by these organizations because it should be part of their factor in terms of decision, uh, you know, in terms of investment, in terms of the viability of the underlying organization, in terms of protecting themselves against these risks. And back to James's point, there's, um, you know, ultimately, again, we get to the adversary and it's a matter of time and patience. Uh, if they want in, there are ways into anywhere. And it's just that motivation and those pieces. So it's, you know, it's we're not creating these silver bullets, you know, oh, we've applied AI, we're good, um, you know, defenders win. It's about responsibility. And then it's also about the balance and making sure that we're addressing that appropriately and having that awareness. And I love bringing it up to the higher levels of the organization, because then it should permeate through as a cultural element top down, but also bottom up. And it's, uh, it's good to see. And like James, I hope it's embraced. And it's good to hear other organizations saying, well, we need that same piece so that we can follow. But uh, again, Tony, I'm going to have to quote you, and it's my favorite. Does it add and contribute to that fog of more where it's just another thing to comply with? It's another thing to approach. You know, you know I want to get it to its base essence and that it's, you know, the, the elements and its purity of the approach is brought to the fold as well. Yeah, I think to, to play off with uh, one of the key points that uh, uh, James made. I don't want to let it get away, right? We've we've sort of created. I'm, I'm looking at me, the old guys in computer security and so forth. In effect, we've created a system where you can't win, right? This is a non-winnable game here that we're playing, and so blaming the victims, you know, and and we sh- we do need you know to set kind of social expectations, right, for what constitutes reasonable behavior in cyberspace by by a, an entity that's holding my private information or whatever. Yes, we do, but you know, this sort of blame shame, uh, you know. Clearly, you screwed up. It's your fault. It's not served us very well, and in fact, it's it's unfair, right? It's it's that the the nature of the business is so complex, so interwoven with technology and the complexity of you know the business relationships that we all live in now. Um, things are going to happen, you know. It's it, there's no perfect technology or system. And by the way, we don't have perfect technology in public health or in transportation safety, or any other risky part of our lives, right? And somehow we've learned to put most of the risk into the infrastructure by certifying people or codifying acceptable building techniques for an airplane or, you know, the strength of materials for a bridge. You know, we build most of that risk in. That does not give us perfect safety or public health, but it gives us a manageable way that we can live our lives, right? Conduct our businesses, et cetera, et cetera. So, so I think it, it is a shifting time here. You know, again, we still need great technologies. We need great people, you know, because this is a really hard game under the hood in terms of technology, but the decision-making, you know, the kind of work that you talked about, right? Putting things in context and now putting it into the boardroom, you know, the role of the SEC or whoever, you know, this is a really fascinating time, I think, for our business. And, and, Again, old old guard technologists, it feels a little uncomfortable, right? Doggone it, we should have invented that perfect technology back then. But it's actually the right path for us as social creatures, right? To, to sort of pull all this together. So 
So I think, um, Sean, any other any other thoughts here? I, this, is, this is, of course, fascinating because you guys do a lot of neat work and we're, we always enjoy oh, our work. Let, let me jump in here. And, and, Please. Oh, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I, I was just going to jump in and give credit to the statement that you just made, Tony, that, that, that Sean had kind of alluded to, which is security is absolutely now a boardroom discussion. It's absolutely a board level discussion. And if it's not, regardless of what organization you're in, and I know public entities don't necessarily have boards all the time, but whatever your board equivalent is, it needs to be talked about. And and here's where I think, this may seem like a reckless statement to make, but here's where, you know, kind of the the prevalence of the threat and and the sophistication and kind of the um, rise in awareness in the public domain of cybersecurity is really helping us is, and, and you'll re- you guys will both remember this. I mean, early on in your career, like security was just kind of tucked away. You know, it was just kind of embedded. You know, it wasn't even always inside IT or underneath the CIO shop. It was it was almost like a, a land of misfit toys and people that were working on a bunch of special projects, <laughs> right? And 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 that's kind of cool. And sometimes I think people probably loved being off on their own and you know not having you know, kind of this uh, purveyance of, of additional governance and compliance, which is spelt using more than four letters, but it's become a four letter word to a lot of people. But, you know, I think to the extent that we can, you know, get this conversation to the highest levels to talk about what could happen, what the real measure of risk could be. I mean, we talk about this, you know, when it comes, and, and this was, this is, this is how it came up in the previous conversation. I know a lot of our listeners aren't going to be oriented towards healthcare, but there's a lot of consolidation and M&A activity in the healthcare space. And one of the dilemmas that they were talking about facing is, you know, I've got to convince my board that when two organizations are converging, that there couldn't be a more vulnerable time for this newly formed entity, right? And by the way, let's give the adversary credit. They're reading the press clippings. They know what's going on. They're licking their chops, seeing that these two orgs are going to be merging and all that backend infrastructure needs to be integrated and, and, and the abundance of resources that they have and the shortcomings that these other two orgs have in the human resource uh, realm. So yeah, we got to talk about it. We can't hide behind it. And I think in the end, if there's additional incentive or motivation, whether it's from SEC guidelines or otherwise, I do think it's going to help us kind of overcome that barrier. Yeah, I completely agree. I have to agree. I don't think that was reckless at all. I think it's responsible in terms of the statement that you mentioned, James. It's uh, one of those things that now, and again, this may be reckless on my part, but we'll find out. I'll get you to, to judge me. But I think at this point in time where we are as businesses, to not have an, a fundamental understanding of cybersecurity risk at the highest levels is irresponsible. It, it's part of your business. It's part of the decision-making process of everything that you technically do now. I mean, if, you know, ultimately there are going to be some cottage industries that may not fit this, but, you know, 99%, are, you, there's a need to have this information. There's a need to be able to answer intelligently or even ask the right questions at that level. And without that, and I think this is why I love the SCC piece, it, it's taking that and saying, look, that there's a level of knowledge that you've got to come to the table with, or you need someone on the board that has that level of knowledge because not answering, asking these questions is not responsible. Just, you know, oblivion to the this risk is uh, unacceptable anymore. So uh, I'll let you judge. 
No, I think you're on the money, Sean. And I think consistent here. You know, I, I used to say people sometimes forget. You know, I was around for the startup of red teaming as a, you know, as a professional activity, especially in the DoD, right, which pioneered a lot of this. And I said, you know, people lose sight of the fact the point of red teaming in the early days. I don't think anyone ever said that loud, but it was clear to me. Uh, the point of those things w- was to create drama, right, to convince senior executives they needed to pay attention. And because, and again, I, I used to run it. I saw the outcome, the, the reports. You didn't produce, a, here's my opinion, you did not produce enough information as a result of a red team on its own to design your security program. Yet people thought they did, right? It's, it's actually a much more complex job. And red teamers are great at what they do. But the real application of it historically, and I think a lot of people still treat it that way, is I have to get an executive's attention, right? Or they won't spend resources, et cetera. Any executive that's not paying attention today, as Sean said, oh my gosh, what, what are they thinking? We, we need different executives, right? Of course, you cannot generate wealth. You cannot save it. You cannot project yourself to the world without technology. This is foundational to the way we operate today in society. And so, yeah, I mean, if you're not paying attention, no drama is going to change your mind, apparently. Maybe an SEC fine will, but, you know, so this is a really, I think, again, a pivotal time to, to think about these kinds of problems. And, um, you know, that, that's, it is so, again, but it, at the end of the day, we're still going to need sort of great technologies, right? Great, really clever people because the bad guys are so motivated. Oh, let me let me point one thing back to you, James. I don't know if you're familiar with this or not, but I think he's your chief security officer, uh, Sean Henry. I think he's still there. Yeah. So Sean, I knew back when he was an FBI, when he started the cyber practice there. And I once saw him quoted in the paper and it was so good. I called him up to make sure he actually said it and to ask his for per- permission to use the quote. I don't know if you know the quote here, but uh, Sean, did you actually say this? He said, of course I did. Here's the quote. Anyone in organized crime that's not getting into this you know, cyber stuff ought to be sued for malpractice. And he was saying this decades ago, and it was so good. I, oh, can I, can I please use that, you know, with attribution? He goes, yeah, of course. He goes, Tony, of course, of course they need to be doing this, right? Because that's where the money is. Why would you run into a bank, pull a gun, put your life at risk when you can do this, you know, a thousand X greater return at a hundred X less risk to you, of course. So therefore the lesson is they're not going away, right? This is their profession. This is what they do. And so we have to be prepared to fight professionals, right? With, with our own professional behavior and not count on kind of magic and, you know, sort of luck to, to defend us or being too small. <laughs> not much of a strategy, is it? <laughs> Any other thoughts, uh, Sean, from your point of view? For... No, just um, again, one of the things, and I think it's been said a few times, it is just that responsibility that we need to start uh, sharing uh, and uh, really delving into. It's, you know, risk is a fascinating subject. Um, but I think we need ultimately the tools to assess our current posture uh, to be able to attribute elements of both defender capability, but uh, as James was mentioning, looking at the, the threat intelligence to be able to adjust and address because it's there is no set and forget. There's such a fluidity and a veracity in terms of the attack um, playbook that we need to have the right tools and the right capabilities to be prepared to react in kind. And uh, so it's, uh, again, appreciate, obviously, the time to talk with you and James and, uh, and understand both uh, the capability and mitigation of risk, but also, uh, you know, alluding to the fact that we're, uh, we, we've got job security and, uh, you know, AI is not going to solve it, but it's a, it's a nice tool. Um, but we'll, uh, 
we'll keep our seats and we'll keep our hands on the keyboard and uh, keep looking at those screens. That sounds great. Hey, James, any last thought you want to leave with our listeners, uh, you know, about either the, the future for them or you know, what, what you think is important for the rest of us to worry about in this industry? Yeah, sure. I, maybe a couple points I can uh, leave you all with. Uh, the first will be just on the evolution of ransomware. You know, obviously not a new uh, kind of threat vector for, for any of us, but we have seen a dramatic shift in kind of the e-crime landscape. And, you know, when it comes to that evolution of ransomware, uh, I've pointed back to our global threat report a few times, uh, but we've got some data that suggests that there's a 20% increase year over year from 22 to 23 in e-crime. In particular, data theft and these campaigns that are really kind of turning into extortion, but without deploying traditional ransomware. So, you know, Two years ago, we saw e-crime adversaries continue to prove their ability to adapt, kind of splinter off, um, and then regroup, band together, um, and then flourish in the face of all these defensive measures. So what we're seeing from the adversary community yet again is this trend that, you know, uh, they're going to bob and weave, right? They're seeing protective measures uh, being employed uh, by the defensive community. They're uh, evolving their tactics. Um, but to, to your point earlier, right, there's no end, uh, to, to their reach and, and to their kind of endeavor to, to kind of, you know, do their damage. The other thing that I would say, just, you know, maybe relative to China, right. As we move into the future, you know, we believe firmly that China is going to continue to be the biggest cyber threat to organizations. That same report revealed, uh, in 2023 that China, you know, linked adversaries were the most active um, and observed in, you know, targeting nearly all of the 39 global industries and sectors in 20 kind of geographical regions. So, you know, every organization, uh, every segment vertical and horizontally within industry must remain vigilant at all times. Yeah, absolutely. Well, thank you, James. That was fantastic. And Tony, thank you so much. And uh, just hot off the press as we conclude is uh, an honoree for 2024 into the Cybersecurity Hall of Fame, uh, Mr. Tony Sega. Congratulations, sir. <laughs> thank you very much, Sean. I am I'm beyond honored and humbled by the by the recognition and grateful for the chance to work in this industry with great folks. Absolutely. Thank you so much for everything you do. And to our audience, thank you. Uh, remember, questions, thoughts, topics, podcast at cisecurity.org to send those in. Remember to subscribe in all the usual ways. And with that, thank you very much. We'll talk to you soon. Thank you for listening to the show today. The thoughts and opinions expressed by our podcast guests are solely theirs and do not necessarily reflect those of CIS. If you're interested in learning more about how to grow your cybersecurity program, the free tools available to help you on your journey, or to get involved with the CIS volunteer community, visit our website, cisecurity.org. Start secure and stay secure.